millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, just under 100 years ago, on the 22nd of June 1922, Sir Henry Wilson was shot dead near his home in London. He was killed by two IRA volunteers. And remember, this was at a time when there had been a truce in place between the Crown Forces and the IRA, as it was, for nearly a year. And the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which formed the basis for the new state, had been signed six months previously. So there was, to a large extent, a complete cessation of hostilities. Now, there was obviously issues going on on the northern side of the border, even though it wasn't officially a border then yet, in the six counties. But in terms of the south and and, uh, Britain, there was largely a cessation of hostilities. And then this assassination came, it appears, out of the blue. One way or the other. It led directly to the civil war in this country as it prompted the British government to put severe pressure on Michael Collins to attack the anti-treaty forces who had barricaded themselves in the forecourts. So who was Wilson and why was he targeted for assassination? And, as some have long speculated, was it Collins himself who ordered the killing? Irish Times journalist Ronan McGreevy has written a fascinating account of this event and its fallout. Great Hatred, the Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson MP is published by Favour. And Ronan joins me now. Ronan, you're very welcome. Thanks very much for having me, Michael. Ronan, first off, there's been a lot of books in the last decade to mark the centenary of what we call the revolutionary decade. What prompted you to look at Henry Wilson? Well, my previous book called uh, Wherever the Firing Line Extends, Ireland and the Western Front was a book about, uh, told the story of the Irish experience in the First World War from the memorials that was left behind on the Western Front. And there's one in uh, Valenciennes St. Roche Cemetery to a guy by the name of Robert Armstrong who had served in the First World War. And during the Second World War, he had joined the French resistance. He, at the time, he was working in the Imperial War Graves Commission or the Commonwealth War Graves Commission, as it is now, as a gardener. And he used that as a front to work for the um, French resistance. He was captured by the Germans and he died in a German prison camp in uh, December 1944. Um the reason why the link with Curry Grain is this, that his father had been the caretaker of the Curry Grain estate, which is the Wilson family estate in uh, in Curry Grain, which is just outside Balnalee in County Longford. And I remember writing that story at the time, thinking to myself, 
hey, wasn't Wilson that guy who was shot dead by the guy with one leg? And um, I think there's also a personal thing for me as well, because uh, Longford is a county I know well, haven't gone to school there for five years, and London is a city I know very well, because like yourself, Mick, I had spent a lot of time in London, nine years to be precise, and I lived very close to 36 Eaton Place, where Wilson was assassinated in uh, June 1922. You must have been doing well if you lived near Eaton Place, Ronan. <laughs> well, I lived, I lived in a... I was very fortunate that I had, at the time, uh, a friend of mine who who had uh, who, who was in assisted housing and he gave me a, he gave me the loan of his flat for two years in, in Pimlico. So it was, uh, yeah, happy Very days. <laughs> no, as you mentioned, and I suppose it'd be a surprise to some people, perhaps a lot, that Henry Wilson was actually Irish. Tell me about him, his background. Well, Henry Wilson was Anglo-Irish, I suppose, is the best way to describe him. His family um, uh, came over in the vanguard of uh, of uh, uh, King William, uh, King Billy in, in, in 1690. So there had been seven generations in Ireland. They had settled in Rashi County, Antrim. Um, uh, his grandfather had made a, a ton of money during the Crimean War, providing um, uh, providing pork and beef to the British army and uh, he bought a lot of um, land down south and the family moved the locus of their to to Dublin to Frascati Uh, if you know where the Frascati shopping centre is Mm. in in Black Rock that's his old that used to that's the site of his old family home and um, Henry Wilson, uh, his father, uh, was the youngest of uh, the, his family and he was given a grant of land of 1,200 acres in Curry Gray and County Longford, which obviously, by most standards, is a very big farm, but it's a medium-sized farm by the standards of the landlord classes that uh, were around at the time. So that land was bought around the time of the famine and the family settled in Curry Gray in County Longford and uh, Wilson grew up there. Uh, he then went to, as as was the wont at the time, he went to public school in England. Uh, he went to Marlborough College. He came back um, and he sat the exam several times for both Sandhurst and uh, and and failed his exams. And he joined the uh, he joined the Longford Militia and he began a very long and su- successful career in the British Army through um, through, through the militia. Um, I think it's important to state that you know. Henry Wilson was not only an Irishman and regarded as such, he also he also said himself that he was an Irishman, but he was also a Unionist and, and a British imperialist. And he saw no contradiction between those three identities a um, uh, hundred years ago. And as you say, he had a long career in the British Army and the Longford Militia, as you described it, Ron, would that have been a, a kind of a unit Within the British Army, yeah, did he serve it would have been abroad? The, it would have been the reserve of the British Army at the time. He eventually got a commission in the uh, uh, the Royal Irish Regiment, which is based down the, in in um, Tipperary. And from there, he joined the Rifle Brigade. And from there, um, he basically rose up the ranks. During the First World War, at the outbreak of the First World War, he was the director of military operations. And this was probably his most successful campaign, as he had um, prepared the British Army for battle in the First World War and he had uh, envisaged how the British Expeditionary Force would in would uh, go to France and deploy itself on the left side of the French 
army as it faced the Germans. And he had been very, very prescient in his preparations for that war. And um, he, in, in, to the extent that, that, that his, his military preparations have been studied in, in colleges uh, ever since. So he was noted as a very, um, a very capable soldier. Okay, and then roll it forward to the War of Independence in this country. Did he fight against his countrymen for the for the British forces in that conflict, or did he have much of a role in it? Well, absolutely. So he became the chief of the Imperial General Staff in in February nineteen eighteen, which is the um, highest rank in the British Army. So he was in charge of the British Army, and in that context, um, when the War of Independence broke out in nineteen nineteen, he was the head of the British Army. And this is quite interesting because um, there was, uh, there was, if you remember the Clonfin ambush in uh, November 1920 in Longford, um, there was a lot of houses of IRA volunteers who were burnt after that. And Sean McKeown, the the um, the blacksmith of Ballon Leaves, a very famous Irish commander, IRA commander mm. at the time, uh, went to Henry Wilson's brother, uh, James, in Corrigrain and told him that if his brother didn't call off the reprisals that he would burn, burn Corrigrain to the ground. Uh, as it turned out, um, the reprisals stopped. Um, so it just goes to show you the role that Wilson had in Ireland. Wilson um, had a very uh, hardcore attitude to the IRA. Um, he believed in saturating the countryside. He believed in shooting. Uh, he uh, shooting on sight. He believed that the British army was in the right and that it didn't have to uh, resort to sort of underhand um, assassination and underhand um, a, a, a reprisals of burning burning houses and, and properties, etc. That he should have done everything on board, told the British people what they were doing and would have had the British people on board had they sought to go all out to crush the IRA. In that respect, uh, he he fell out with the British political establishment, who felt and rightly so that that such a such an approach would would incur the the wrath not only of liberal opinion in Britain, but would make Britain a pariah in the rest of the world, especially in the United States. No, like I suppose a lot of the military, the top brass of the military who were fighting in Ireland at the time, he wasn't necessarily a great fan of the black and tans. No, he wasn't. I mean, one of the things that that Wilson says. And and it was a consistent, uh, consistent sort of theme that he had throughout his military career that he believed in military discipline, and he felt that the black and tans and the auxiliaries were not disciplined forces, and he despaired of that quite a lot. But his despair was um, privately uh, voiced, uh, not publicly voiced, and he felt the same way. In fact, um, we'll come on to this later. I suspect about the Ulster Special Constabulary, the B Specials in the in, in in Northern Ireland, that they lacked discipline as well. So um, Wilson was actually horrified from the point of view as a, as a as a military man of the sort of reprisals that was going on in Ireland. He felt that there was a complete lack of discipline on the part of the British Army in Ireland. He felt that no good could come of it. He felt, as I said to you before, that the British should have declared all a war in Ireland, saturated the countryside with forty to 50,000 troops killed, uh, killed every IRA volunteer they, they could find, and that would have pacified the country. That was his approach. Of course, that approach was uh, thankfully never implemented by the British government, who were particularly as they were politicians, not soldiers. So they saw it. He saw the the resolution of the Irish conflict in political rather than military terms. And then we move forward to the truce. We move forward to what even before 
the northern question, if you want to put it that way, mm. is settled. It looks like you, uh, provisionally you had the, effectively the six counties. Did he turn his attention then north, realising that there was going to be a new free state down here? Because he stood to be an MP at well, that stage. He became military advisor to the Unionist government there, didn't he? Yeah, so Wilson was the chief of the Imperial General Staff from February 1918 to uh, February 1922. He served his four years term. There's no question of him being reappointed to the role as he had completely fallen out with the British government to the extent that he hadn't spoken to Lloyd George for nine months. But what happened was that he resigned his his commission and then uh, two days later he had already been allocated a seat basically in North Down. There was a vacancy in the North Down constituency. He was asked to stand by some of his friends. He had been a staunch supporter of of Ulster Unionism privately behind the scenes and now he had made his, his commitment to the cause of Ulster Unionism. He made it public by becoming uh, an MP in February 1922. So it's important to understand his assassination in that context. He was no longer a serving soldier but he obviously had the profile of a of, of, of somebody who had been a very distinguished and successful soldier. So, um, you know, he became an Ulster Unionist MP in February 1922. A month later he was appointed by the uh, northern uh, government of James Craig as a military advisor and he wrote um, his advice to the British government uh, or to the northern government was published in uh, the newspapers he basically stated um, that uh, no anybody who was not loyal to the crown would was should not be allowed to bear arms which was a direct uh, uh, a direct policy aimed at the Catholic community he did feel that, that the, the Ulster Special Constabulary should be a mixed force of Catholics and Protestants. But I mean, in the context of the time, that was impossible. So he became associated in the public mind with the excesses of the Special Powers Act, which was introduced in, in March 1922. And the Special Powers Act was still in place in 1971 when internment was introduced as allowed for the um, internment without trial. And it gave all uh, for the for the closing down of parades, for the closing down of newspapers, etc. Uh, but more, more, and most importantly, I think the thing that really riled the nationalist community the most that was a, was a provision in it for the allowing the flogging of of suspects. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. So, there was certainly a perception, Ronan, that he was in some way involved in the programs against Catholics, basically yeah. the killing of Catholics yeah. randomly. Uh, did he have a role in it or did he have a figurehead role in it or did he express any opinion on it? The answer to that question is no. He was not involved in the day-to-day running of any of these organisations, the, the Special Constabulary or the RUC as it was then, or the British Army, which was still in the north uh, in, in 1922. As I said to you, his, his main role was to, uh, he was asked for his opinion on how these forces should be arranged and he gave that opinion. But as as far as the day-to-day running of the uh, specials constabulary etc was involved he had no role in that and he despaired actually of the sectarian nature of the spe- of the special constabulary or the b specials but i think it's important to state that uh, this was not apparent to nationalist ireland at the time and this is a really important when you consider why he was assassinated uh, as far as nationalist ireland was concerned and this was appeared regularly in the newspapers at the time he was the uh he was the man in charge of of the uh state violence in the north it all be the book stopped with him etc cetera, etc cetera. and from his perspective he never sought at any stage to correct that perception that people had of him so you know by by the time he was assassinated in june 1922 he was the ultimate bete noir of, of, of nationalist Ireland. And so, um, you know, it, as, as Eamon de Valera at the time says, while I am shocked about what happened, I can hardly be surprised given what has happened in the North. And I think that was an expre- that was a viewpoint that was very, very common in, in Ireland okay. at the time. Quite obviously, Ronan, for the book, and you've gone into some fantastic detail there, you researched his life to a large extent. Now, we know his reputation, the, even reflected I suppose to some extent in the in the in the title in the book Great Hatred. Did you in researching him see any redeeming features or come to like any aspect of him? Well I mean Mick I, I don't believe in cartoon characters or cartoon yeah. caricatures. I mean he was clearly in many ways a brilliant man, but but like a lot of brilliant men he was also rather stupid. And I mean you know, people, he was genuinely loved by a lot of people and hated by others as well. But he he was good humoured. He was, uh, he was, he was funny. He was charismatic. He was a brilliant uh, explainer. He, and you know, he, he played a decisive role, whether you agree with it or not, in, in the defeat of Germany in, in, in the First World War. His problem from the beginning was Ireland. He simply, he'd never understood nationalist Ireland or he never wanted to understand nationalist Ireland. He never believed that the uh, Irish people were capable of ruling themselves. He also had a lot of bad qualities. Even his friends recognised that he was quite depletious and um, temperamental and uh, mercurial. But I could imagine being in his company and a lot of people used to talk about how charming he was in person. But, you know, when you look at his record in, in relation to Ireland, um you know, it's a it's a very very sad story, and again, you know, I, 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 
you haven't read the book or haven't written, haven't researched his life as much as I do, I'm still at a loss to understand why he just couldn't bring himself to understand the the point of view of the majority of his of his fellow countrymen. Okay, and so we bring it forward. As I said, we we were um, we're in June twenty two. There has been relative peace, bar what the Catholics in the north were being subjected, which was some horrendous uh, pogroms and what have you. But in the south, there was relative peace. And yet we're over in London. There are still elements of the IRA there, as there had been throughout the War of Independence. And we have this woman, Mary Egan. Tell me about her. Well, Mary Egan had been... um uh, this is during the War of Independence. She was, um, she'd been a sort of an auxiliary in London. She had been sent from Cork to um, provide assistance to the IRA in London. She gave a statement to the Pensions Board, which has only come out in recent years. And I can talk about how the military service pensions collection has helped us understand this this incident so much better. But she was over in London in 1921. And she says that there had been a meeting at which Reggie Dunn had attended, at which they talked about shooting Wilson. No, just just to let people know, R- R- Reggie Dunn was one of the yes, two men sorry, who yes, he did the shooting that. along we, with we Joe can Sullivan. Talk about them, but but one of the assassins. Yeah. So so Reggie Dunn, we 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 have evidence and only recent evidence from the military service pension collection files that Mary Egan had said that there had been a meeting in our house in which the, the assassination of Henry Wilson was discussed. Now, we don't know when, but it's crucial to understand that this was before the truce of 1921. So Wilson had been targeted for assassination as early as the autumn of 1920. But um, to, to paraphrase the, the, the Godfather, it was business, not personal. He was targeted along with all the members of the British cabinet, plus people like um, the proprietor of the Daily Mail, some of the people in Scotland Yard, etc. So Wilson had been on a list to be shot before the truce happened. Now, it's important to... Um, to state that after the truce, as far as the, the presumption was made in Nationalist Ireland that any plans to kill members of the British cabinet or members of the British establishment was off the table. However, yeah, that's what I would have thought, yeah. Yes. yes. However, it's important to um, understand that uh, the London IRA didn't necessarily see it that way. And they felt that um, uh, Wilson was uh, a justifiable target for assassination, not because of his role as the chief of the Imperial General Staff or what he had done during the War of Independence, but specifically because of his role as the advisor to the Northern Government. And people have speculated over the last 100 years as to why Wilson was assassinated. And the answer to that, and it comes from the horse's mouth, it comes from the two men who shot him, Reggie Dunn and Joe O'Sullivan. He was shot because of his perceived involvement in the pogroms in the North in 1922. Okay, and... As I said, that's June 22. Now, at that point in Ireland, we have what you might call a gathering of tensions between the pro and anti-treaty forces. And on the pro-treaty forces, we have Michael Collins. Now, it subsequently emerged that Collins, uh, behind the scenes to some extent, was attempting, to some extent, how how great, I'm not sure, of helping the Catholics who were quite obviously under fire, literally, in the North. And because of that, there has long been speculation that he had some hand in this plan to assassinate Wilson. Mm. How does that stand up in terms of your research? Well, 
Uh, I think uh, the Anglo-Irish Treaty would not have been passed in the Dáil but for Michael Collins. I think that's well established. Oh, yeah. There was a coterie of, of TDs who said, if it's good enough for Mick Collins, it's good enough for me. So Mick Collins was the prime advocate of the treaty on the basis, as we know famously, that it was the, it was the stepping stone theory. It was the freedom to achieve freedom. Um, so Collins was the greatest advocate for the treaty. And as he said himself famously to Birkenhead, uh, I have signed my, literally signed my death warrant. So he's ready to put his life on the line for the treaty. However, Collins had a different uh, approach to the treaty as far as the North was concerned. He never accepted the Northern state and he did his best from the very beginning to undermine it uh, to the extent that even in January 1922, when the ink was barely dry on the treaty, um, he had organised to kill the um, hangman who was due to hang three IRA volunteers who were in Derry jail at the time. He also sent a rescue party known as the Monaghan footballers uh, to rescue them. And there was a lot of tit for tat um, violence across the border in, you know, between January and June 1922. Um, and a lot of incidents occurred, you know, uh, in, in that time, uh, uh, there was the Clonus of Frey in which, in which the IRA um, killed uh, 6B specials at Clonus Station. There had been kidnappings on both sides of the border. There had been the Alton of A massacre on the 17th of June. So, uh, But most importantly, there had been in early June 1922 a, a, a military confrontation between the, the Irish Army and the British Army over the villages of Pettigo and uh, Belik in, 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 uh, along the border. So, I mean... It wasn't exactly quiet at the time, but Michael Collins certainly, um, he wanted to undermine the Northern government, even though he had actually in January, um, in, 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 he had signed two pacts with James Craig to try and end the violence in the North, but he sought to undermine the Northern government at every stage. In May and June 1922, there was an IRA offensive, um, which was due to undermine the British, uh, the, the Northern state, but it didn't succeed. Um, because they simply were they were faced against um, the British Army, the B Specials, and the RUC, who we were all uh, armed to their teeth. So Collins had basically given up temporarily on on dealing with the North. But there's 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 ample evidence that had he lived, he really wanted to get the National Army together to uh, march on the North at a later date. And this was in. Um, contradiction to the wishes of the other members of the cabinet at the time who didn't want any more adventurism in the north considering that what they were facing in the south which was a looming prospect of civil war yeah i have to say ron i, I i'm always skeptical about um projections in terms of what uh dead leaders might have done we, we often had it with john f kennedy in terms of how much they got yeah. into vietnam and there has been that but i the, that, that feeling is there. But following on from that, so yeah. does that lend credence to the theory that he may have had a hand in... Um, in the shooting, absolutely. Yeah. Um, if I might just talk, uh, Mick, about, about the two guys who killed Wilson and then I yeah, can, yeah, I'll, I'll, make that, the, yeah. I'll make the connection to, to Michael Collins. The two guys who killed um, Henry Wilson were Reginald Dawn and Joe Sullivan. Reginald Dawn was an only child. He was the son of a British Army bandsman. His 
mother's family were from County Monaghan. His father's family were of Irish Catholic descent, but I haven't been able to establish where along the way. He grew up in he grew up in England, but course, but yeah. he grew up in London. Yeah, he grew he was an he grew up in an army barracks. He was a what they call an army brat. I suppose you'd call them nowadays. Uh, Joe Sullivan's mother and father were from Cork. Uh, he was one of 11 children, uh, six boys, five of whom served in the First World War, including himself. Reggie Dunn served with the Irish Guards, um, Joe O'Sullivan with the um, with the London Regiment. They both had exemplary service. Uh, Dunn, both were uh, wounded veterans of the First World War. Dunn um, walked with a stick for several years after the First World War because he had, his knee sh- kneecap was shattered by a shell at Ar- Arras. And um, Joe O'Sullivan lost his leg at Passchendaele in 1917 and walked around with a wooden leg. It didn't stop his commitment to um, Irish nationalism to the extent that when he visited uh, Cork during the War of Independence, he actually bought with him in the hollow of his wooden leg um, 450 rounds of uh, 303 ammunitions for the Lee Enfield. So just goes to show you how committed they were as Irish nationalists. They were involved during the... um, War of Independence in lots of different endeavours, uh, including uh, the burning and looting of the homes of black and tans, the burning of uh, haystacks on the outside of London, the uh, sabotage in relation to uh, uh, the, the underground and the overground railways, and generally creating uh, mayhem uh, in, in, in London. Um, Reginald Dawn was the uh, officer commanding the IRA in London uh, during the War of Independence. Um, And it's interesting as well, he was sworn into the Irish Republican Brotherhood by Sam Maguire, a man who needs no introduction and who figures very prominently in my book as the sort of eminent squeeze of the uh, IRA uh, stroke IRB in London. So these two guys, uh, after the First World War, um, Dawn joined the IRA having uh, come through the uh, Conran, uh, come through the Gaelic League, um, he adopted Ireland as his cause um, to his death. Joe O'Sullivan, as he said, came from an old Fenian family. His old family were involved in the Irish national movement one way or the other. And his brother, Pat, actually served in the IRA in Cork. And his brother, they, they were master tailors in London, the O'Sullivan family, and their... their um, uh, shop in Ch- in in uh, in Chancery Lane was used as a, as a front to organise meetings for the IRA and store uh, ammunition and so on. So um, they were involved, obviously, in the IRA. Now, come the truce period, um, I think we all you know are under the impression that everything stopped after the truce. But in fact, nobody knew for certain that the IRA that 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 the truce was going to hold. So the IRA kept on drilling and organising, etc., etc. So when the treaty uh, happened in 1922, it split the London IRA in the same way that it split um, the uh, anti-treaty IRA. Um, It's at that stage that uh, we begin to, uh, Wilson comes into the picture in December 1921, in which the IRA uh, in London agree to sink their difference and they target three people for assassination. The first one is Wilson. The second one is John Bone Colthurst, the uh, mad officer who shot dead Francis Sheehy Skeffington and two other men during the uh, Easter Rising. And the third one was a woman whose name we don't have in uh, Cork who had betrayed some IRA volunteers. So if we go, if we move on into 1922, um, Reggie Dunn is desperately trying to keep the IRA together in London. There are uh, elements within the uh, uh, the London IRA, particularly Art O'Brien, who was the sort of 
the, the first Irish ambassador, so to speak, of the Irish Republic in London who are go anti-treaty. And um, he's taunted uh, by uh, Common Amman in, in London uh, about uh, whether or not, and asked whether or not he, he's actually pro or anti-treaty. It turns out um, he's, he's really conflicted about the whole thing. We don't know where Joe O'Sullivan stood on it, but we do know that his brother was anti-treaty. So um, this is that's the background to June 1922. So what happens is, um, and how we get to the shooting, is that um, there's a meeting in Mooney's pub, which I believe is still there in Holborn, uh, which is a common meeting place for uh, the um, London IRA. And the meeting takes place on the night before uh, the um, assassination. Uh, they don't know. Uh, they're there to discuss general matters and to try and, 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 and heal the rift that's happening in the uh, London IRA. And somebody brings in a copy of the evening newspaper and in the evening newspaper is a, is a, is a short one paragraph to state that Henry Wilson is going to unveil a memorial at Liverpool Street Station the following day. And, that, and, and that's where the assassination plans kick into, um, kick into uh, uh, vogue. So to some extent... Was it just a, a chance? It was a an chance. An opportune? Absolutely. This is why, um, I mean, uh, one of the things I go into in my book is the fact that um, the, the, the Sinn Féin and, uh, had, had adopted a policy of assassination from March 1918 during the conscription crisis. And they had had previous opportunities to, to kill members of the British cabinet, but... Um, the, the the final order was never given uh, because obviously the 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 uh, potential impact of killing members of the British cabinet could have derailed any chance Ireland would have had of negotiating with the British. But obviously that didn't pertain, ironically enough, in June 1922 because the treaty had been signed, sealed and delivered. Mm. So it was absolutely by chance that this notice appeared in the paper uh, uh the evening paper on 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 the evening of june the 21st 1922 this is at a time where you know pre-internet pre-everything where you you didn't know where politicians were going to be from one day to the next yeah no the notice wasn't made i mean to actually track down politicians was extremely difficult at the time and so um essentially you had to take the opportunities when they came up which is what happened right. yeah you relate the actual day of the assassination in fantastic detail. I have to say, Ron, gives a great sense of the time and London as a place, uh, very much so. And then the, the the two men are, within a couple of months, they're both um, executed, they're both hung for the murder. But just taking it back to Ireland now, so this occurs, it's obviously massive shock to the British cabinet. Immediately, Collins is put under pressure to move against the anti-treaty forces as a result of this assassination. Yes, well, I, I, if we if we might go back to the signing of the treaty in 1921 and its ratification by the Dáil, we know, for instance, that De Valera walked out of the Dáil after the vote, so that the treaty split um, uh, dates from that time, right? But it's also important to remember that the IRA also split over this and a substantial, mm. probably a majority of the IRA went anti-treaty. In April 1922, um, a group of anti-treaty rebels uh, uh, occupied the four courts in defiance of the provisional government and said they weren't going to accept the provisional government. And uh, at the time, um, 
the provisional government as it was, which had just been appointed, uh, really didn't have the moral strength or even the military strength to move against them. So this standoff went on from the 13th of April till the 28th of June uh, to the consternation of the British government who said, who were saying to the, uh, to the provisional government, look, you're in charge here. You can't allow this to happen. You can't be allowing anti-treaty rebels to occupy the four courts. And the British had considered going in to clear the four courts themselves. But that would, of course, have been a violation of the treaty and it would have started, the probably united pro and anti-treaty side. So it would have, it would have started the, the war of independence again. So, um, uh, so they were in a, on the horns of a dilemma here. And also there was a, it's, all, it's important to remember too, that there was a looming threat of, of civil war. And in order to try and stave that off, De Valera and Michael Collins came to a pact in May 1922 in, in advance of the June uh, by, uh, general election in Ireland, that they would, both sides, the pro and anti-treaty Fein would field candidates according to their rel- relative strengths as had been uh, shown at the uh, at the treaty vote. And the British government didn't like this at all because they felt, A, that they that the public weren't being given a proper choice, and secondly, that it could mean that somebody like de Valera would end up serving in an, in an Irish government after the election, even though he didn't accept the treaty. And uh, one of the clauses in the treaty stated that in order to serve in the Irish government, you needed to accept the treaty, etc. So... Um, 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 it, 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 so we have this situation where the British government is deeply unhappy about what's going on in Ireland. They feel that the uh, government, uh, the provisional government, is not asserting its authority. Now, it's important to remember on the 16th of June 1922, we had the first general election in, 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 in the new Irish state. And it is an overwhelming victory for pro-treaty candidates, um, for the pro-treaty Sinn Féin, but also for those parties who accepted the treaty but were far more interested in getting on with things like the Labour Party, Independence, the Farmers Party. So the the, the heel of the hunt, the, the anti-treaty side got only 22% of the vote in that election. So as far as the British government was concerned, there was a mandate for for the, the, the provisional government to act and to, to assert its authority. And obviously it was going to make that point clearly to the Irish government, but then the Wilson shooting happens just six days after the election. And it's important to keep that timetable in mind. So the Irish public didn't even have the time to digest the results of the election before the Wilson shooting happens. And so the British government is left in this situation whereby probably uh, where they decide if, if the Irish government, if the provisional government with this mandate is not going to deal with the anti-treaty rebels, we will do it. And this provided the perfect excuse for them to do it, the Wilson shooting. So um, it, it, Lloyd George writes to Collins that evening saying, as far as we're concerned, this shooting was carried out by the anti-treaty forces. If you don't deal with them, we will. So this is this is why this is the episode that starts the civil war it is the british ultimatum to the irish government to michael collins that forces the irish government to act against the anti-treaty rebels and he actually even lent them the guns to do so which was symbolic i suppose of itself yeah absolutely so like I, I, one of the things uh, the points i make in the book michael is 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 and one of the reasons i wrote this book among other reasons is this is this is ireland sarajevo you know this is the moment yeah where, so, yeah yeah so you know uh, any student of history knows that the first world war begins with the assassination of the archduke for franz ferdinand which leads to the austrian uh, ultimatum to serbia and a kicks off this 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 system of alliances which brings the whole world to war within 37 days there's an analogy here in the sense that 
it's the Wilson shooting that creates the British ultimatum to the Irish government and the Irish government is forced into either either not acting against the four court rebels and risk starting a war against Britain, which they wouldn't win, or dealing with the anti-treaty rebels and the, the Irish government takes the path of least resistance and they, 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 they deal with the four court rebels. So this is how the Wilson shooting ends up starting the civil war. Yes, and that of itself, of course, is a whole other ball game that is going to be delved into, I think, in various conferences and other mm. forums over the coming months. One of the great tragedies, I think, of the last uh, century and a yeah. bit, that civil war that, that, that developed out of that. But Ronan McGreevy, I have to say, Ronan, uh, a fascinating read. Um, great Hatred, the Assassination of Field Marshal Sir Henry Wilson, MP, you you give him his full title and all, Ronan. <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think I, I did because I think it's important to 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 state that he he had been field marshal, so which is the highest rank in the British Army. He yeah. was a sir, but that's obviously. But that he was also an MP. So I, I I wanted to get both the military and political aspect of his life into the title. So yeah, very good. No, imagine, and of course, it's published by Faber. Ronan, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Ah, I'd also like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening, folks. And we're going to see you again soon. Go easy in the meantime. <laughs>